So today we are, we're coming to, to the end of our study of 2 Samuel. We actually have one more week next week. These last few chapters of 2 Samuel, we're going to be in chapter 21 today. This is sort of the epilogue to David's story, kind of uh, wrapping up, again, some things that have happened after the time of Absalom's rebellion. There's two stories that we're going to read together here in chapter 21. Uh, the first story is the one we're really going to focus in on today in our sermon. But let's go ahead and just read through the entire chapter so that you've got a good context on some of these events as David is concluding his time as the king of Israel. Um, now, maybe some unusual stories. These are probably not ones that were ever covered, you know, when you were a child going through vacation Bible school, Sunday school class. I know Veggie Tales didn't do any episodes on, on anything in this chapter. Um, maybe you haven't even heard a sermon on chapter 21 of, of 2 Samuel. But I would say really in this first episode that we're going to see, you're going to see some echoes, some um, preview of some things that, that are going to be very familiar to us on the cross. But there may be some challenging things that we read here. Um, maybe a, this is probably a PG-13 or up sermon. Uh, based on the text that we have. So let's go, let's go ahead. That probably got you interested, so let's dig in. Second Samuel 21. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, what do you say that I shall do for you? They said to the king, the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth, different Mephibosheth, must be a common name, and the five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Maholathite. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord and the seven of them perished together. They were put to death on the first days of harvest at the beginning of barley harvest. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until the rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. When David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, the concubine of Saul, had done, 
David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead who had stolen them from the public square of Bethshan where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines killed Saul on Gilboa. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin in Zelah, in the tomb of Kish, his father. And they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. That's the story we'll dig into. Let's, let's finish out this chapter and get the wider context. There was war again between the Philistines and Israel, and David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines. And David grew weary. And Ishbibanab, one of the descendants of the giants, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze, and who was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, You shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. After this, there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibachai, the Hushathite, struck down Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giants. And there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. And Elhanan, the son of Jeri-Oragim, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. There was again war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number. And he also was descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. These four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. A lot of what's happening here in chapter 21 is a reminder of what we've seen all along throughout David's reign and what God had really instructed to Israel. As you look for a king, look for the kind of king who's going to lead the people in worshiping the one true God, maker of heaven and earth, in leading them to trust in God to be the one who brings victory and fights the battles. Don't look for a king who takes matters into his own hands. Don't look for a king who amasses armies chariots, horses, and gets the credit for victory, but serve the God who grants victory and defeats giants, defeats formidable foes. When you're outnumbered, that God who grants victory. And so we see David in acts of faithfulness at the end of his reign and God's blessing that comes. Let's focus a little bit more carefully here on the first story that we read here in chapter 21 of 2 Samuel uh, verses 1 through 14. So there's a famine in the land. It's, it's lasted three years. And, you know, we dug into this with the guys on Wednesday morning at Carino's, or at uh, Legends Coffee over at Southlands. Um, I'd encourage you guys, men, if, if you have that time slot available on a Wednesday morning, it's a very encouraging time with some brothers. We had about a dozen guys there on Wednesday. Um, some of the guys, Sergio shows up at, I think, you know, 4.30 a.m. I'm, I'm thinking, I don't know for sure. 
maybe six, something like that, and gets a table reserved for us. So there's guys there pretty early. Um, get your cup of coffee. We usually start the Bible study at about seven. And so we got a chance to read through part of this story together and then dig into it. And it's just fun getting together with some brothers to, to say, well, what are some things that you detect in here? And, and, and to bring in uh, that interpretive community as God's spirit is there and there's believing community and you're digging into God's word together and saying, well, what does this mean? What does it mean to us? What do we do about this? So guys, if you've never done it, you probably drink coffee or hot chocolate at least. So I invite you to, to join us on a Wednesday morning if you can do that. One of the insights that, that I uh, heard as I'm, as I'm spending time with the brothers there on Wednesday was the content of David's prayer here right in the first verse. And how our tendency is to come to God, the maker of the, the heavens, the one who we sang about this morning as being the sovereign God who's great and mighty, and feel like our prayer is really intended to kind of fill him in on some things he's not aware of. You know, bring him up to speed. Let him know the trials we're going through or the things he needs to do on our behalf or in our circumstances. And as if as if God's up there, you know, oblivious to the fact that I'm hurting, I'm suffering, I'm going through something difficult, or I need provision. So to have a bit more of a hum humble attitude as we come to God in prayer, and you look at the content of David's prayer, it wasn't, hey God, I'd like you to do three things for me right now. Number one, stop the famine. Number two, cause the crops to grow. And number three, fill everyone's bellies because they're angry at me, the king, because we're in the middle of a famine that's lasted three years. But you don't see that sort of aggression from David as he goes to God. You just see David seeking the face of God. It's different from the common phrase that we've seen in First and Second Samuel. Often it says they inquired of the Lord or some individual inquired of the Lord. And that's seeking the voice of God, really, listening to God speaking. And yet here this is coming before God or before the face of God Seeking the face of the Lord. And I think, you know, the, the, the thing I think about this situation, it's not one of these where there's a question as to what God's desired outcome is to be. You know, a lot of our prayers are in that category where I'm going, you know, I would really like a big fat tax return come April. And so I'm going to pray that to God, but hopefully if I'm aware of Scripture and I'm, submitted to God, I understand that maybe my plans are not always his plans. That in times of scarcity, he can cause my faith in him to increase. So I'm not trusting in that bank account, but I'm trusting in him to provide. And so I wrestle with that at times as I'm in prayer. God, how should I pray? But in a case like this where it's God's good creation that is not functioning the way it ought to, it's a pretty safe prayer to say, God, would you please restore the land, the land that you promised to our ancestors, the land flowing with milk and honey? It's not, you know, a desert region. This is where crops should be growing, and we're in three years of famine. There's something out of the ordinary, God. You're the good creator, the good provider, the God who led us out of Egypt to the land of promise. It would have been a pretty safe prayer to say, God, will you please intervene and fix this famine. And yet David doesn't even go that far. He just seeks the face of God. I thought that was a good insight. 
And God replies. God speaks as David comes before him and says, God, I want to see you. I want to know you. I want to hear what you have to say. God meets him in that place and speaks to him. Listen to what God says to David here at the end of verse 1 and into verse 2. The Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. This event that God brings out is not mentioned in First and Second Samuel. It's not recorded here for us to go back and look at a deeper context and go, oh yeah, that's that time when Saul did that boneheaded thing. He, he did a lot of other things that we could go and, and read about in detail. You know, conjuring up dead people to ask their advice on things. Um, offering a sacrifice that was unauthorized. Throwing spears at God's anointed next king. There's a whole litany of things that Saul did that we could go back and read about, but this is not one of them. And yet, uh, God says it happened, so it happened. It's just not recorded here in First and Second Samuel. We'll get fuller details about that someday when we see him face to face and we can ask God to play back the, the reel on this episode. But we do know about the Gibeonites because we, we encounter them all the way back in Joshua chapter 9. So this is further back in Israel's history prior to any king in Israel. Saul was the first king. David was the second king. Prior to that, you go back far enough, they were slaves in Egypt. God led them out of slavery. Forty years they wandered in the wilderness as they headed toward that promised land. And finally, at the beginning of Joshua, the book of Joshua, God leads them across the Jordan River into the promised land. They march up to that first walled city that they encounter in the land of Canaan. Big old city named Jericho. Jericho. Hey, there's a kid's ministry elder right there. Brian knows that one. I mean, that's a, that one we do, we do have a Veggie Tales episode about even. Yep, that's right. And so they, they march around the walls of the city, blow the trumpets. God causes the walls of the city to crumble. And so this is the time in Israel's history that the Gibeonites come in. So God had given some instructions to his people. I'm going to give you this promised land. You're to take the land. That land is going to be a beacon for the whole world to see what it looks like to have my people worshiping me, the one true God. Part of that is a difficult command of God. He says, drive out the inhabitants of the land. Destroy the inhabitants of the land. That's going to be a land set apart for my worship and my glory. And so, you know, as you read the book of Joshua, there are some problems along the way with that command. And you see little hints that there's going to be problems to come later as they fail to obey that command to drive out the inhabitants of the land, to destroy them. But there's one really tricky group of people named the Gibeonites, and they're in chapter 9. And so they hear what's going on. They, they, they've heard that uh, Jericho has fallen, that there is a God, the same God that delivered this people group that you know, we had not met prior to this. He delivered them from Egypt. He led them here. He's tor- torn down the walls of our toughest city, Jericho. And he's blessing these people. And we, the Gibeonites, are among those Canaanites that are to be destroyed or driven from the land. And so the Canaanites, or the, the Gibeonites there in, 
in Joshua chapter 9, they come up with a, a devious plan and they, um, they do some play acting. So they, they get their costumes ready, they get their props ready, they get their lines ready and they show up to meet Joshua and the armies of Israel. They've got worn out, torn and mended sacks and wineskins with them. They've got worn out and patched sandals on their feet. They have worn out clothes on and they have some dry, crumbly bread. And they show up with a story. We're from a very distant land. Look at, look at our clothing. Look at our provisions. When we started our journey, this was freshly baked bread. Look at it now. It's musty, dry. We've been marching for a long time. We're not from around here. And so there's a little disturbing phrase in Joshua 9. It says that Joshua and his men did not ask counsel from the Lord. They just looked at the costumes and the props and heard the lines delivered by the Gibeonites and they bought it hook, line, and sinker. They didn't inquire of the Lord. They didn't ask counsel from the Lord. And instead they made peace with these foreigners from way far off Seem like nice guys. And they want to have a covenant with us. Let's make a covenant with them. We'll promise to let them live. We'll promise peace with them forever. Let's, let's, uh, let's swear before the Lord with a covenant with these Gibeonites from a distant land. And just a couple of days later, they found out, these guys live around here. They were among the Canaanites that God instructed us to drive out of the land. So that's who we're dealing with. And apparently Saul, during his reign, violated that covenant that Joshua had made. And he did put to death the Gibeonites. And now God is is more concerned about violating a covenant than he is about that original bargain that was struck between Joshua and the Gibeonites. So now David is coming, is, is hearing this for the first time. God is saying, There's blood guilt. There's justice that is required. And justice requires making amends. It it requires righting the wrong. There's different kinds of justice. I could think of at least three. There might be more. Retributive justice is when you get even with somebody. You know, the Hatfields and the McCoys in the Appalachian Mountains. You killed my family member, we're coming over your way. I'm bringing my cousins. That's retributive justice. It's an eye for an eye. It's doing the time for the crime, right? There's also restorative justice. You know, you, you, you took your sister's outfit without asking her permission, give it back. Now she gets to borrow something of yours. You know, you stole from someone, you're going to pay that back plus a fine. You're going to make it right. Restorative justice. There's also distributive justice. Scarce resources all going to one place. What about these other people that don't have any? How is that fair? How is that just? So there's different categories of justice. And God is bringing to David's attention an injustice from Israel's past that hasn't been resolved. 
God does not give explicit instructions to David. Here's how I want you to fix this. He just brings the violation to David's awareness and then says, well, you're the king. Deal with it. So then David has to go a step further. He has to go to the ones who have been wronged and admit God has revealed to me that I need to deal with this and address the wrong that was committed. How are we going to fix this? How are we going to make amends? And that's what happens next. The king called the Gibeonites, spoke to them. And the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. And although the people had sworn to spare them back in Joshua 9, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. So now David puts it to them. What shall I do for you and how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? So we have that word atonement. Um, that's, a, that's a loaded theological word. Someone told me when I was younger, I think this is a good way to Think about the, the meaning of the word atonement, at one minute. Okay, so uh, we need atonement, right? So the, Israel needed to make atonement for the wrongs that Saul had committed against the Gibeonites. We need atonement because we have committed wrongs against our maker, and that's called sin. And so we need a way to be made at one with the one who created us. And we'll, we'll get into that because I think there's a picture of the ultimate atonement in this atonement act here way back in the Old Testament in Israel's history under David. So there's blood guilt. There's justice required. There's amends that need to be made. There's a need for atonement. And yet God has not given David any explicit instructions on how to carry that out. So the, the Gibeonites, as David's asking, how am I going to make atonement with you for what Saul did? Essentially, they say, well, not through either retributive or restorative justice. We're not looking for you to pay a fine to give us money. We're not looking to do an eye for an eye situation here where, you know, your king tried to wipe us out. Now we, our king gets to wipe you guys out. You know, so they're saying really neither of those categories. And so what they, you know, it, it almost seems like a, a contradiction when they say, neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And then a verse later they say, except for those seven guys. And yet I would say what they're saying, what we want to make atonement is a substitute. So the offended part of the offense was an entire nation persecuted, hunted down, a whole people group that was wronged. We're not going to do retributive and say an entire people group, an entire nation must now be punished for that crime against our people. But we're saying just a substitute, a representative substitute from the immediate family that was really responsible for the crimes, that is who we want to make atonement, to be held to justice, to make this right. This is, this is another one of those challenging passages that we come across in the books of First and Second Samuel. And a lot of times people will look at this story and go, this sounds like God is um, commanding human sacrifice. 
And he's saying, you know, I'm, I'm going to just give you guys a famine in your land until you kill some people. And that, you know, that would fit within this time in history in, in the ancient Near Eastern world. That was the very problem that was happening there in the land of Canaan when God said, drive the inhabitants out of the land. They are pagan to, with a capital P. They're pagan to the nth degree there in Palestine. And so they need to be put out and, and moved out so that my people can worship the one true God and that they can be blessed and that through them all the inhabitants of the earth can be blessed. And so the idea of human sacrifice would not have been foreign to these Gibeonites or to anyone else in the region. And yet I don't think that's what's happening here. That's, you know, when the Gibeonites say, neither is it, us, is it to us, is it for us to put any man to death in Israel, they're saying, no, we're not doing a human sacrifice thing. That, you know, you're, we're going to count up how many Gibeonites Saul killed and we're going to take that many Israelite lives to make amends. Is this a case of, you know, the sins of the father being passed down on their sons? You know, where Saul did something bad and now his boys are going to pay the price. I don't think it's that either. Saul gave an order. Saul sought to strike them down, not with his own hand. It's likely that these seven sons were a part of the crime's against the Gibeonites. They're at least a part of that household. God himself said the blood guilt is on Saul and on his house. He didn't say the blood guilt is on Saul, but let's make his sons have to pay for that. And there's a myth that we hold at times as well when when you consider what is sin and what does it mean to be saved from our sins. Um, it is true that there's a link between you and I and Adam and Eve's original sin in the garden. But if that were all, that, if that were the whole story, that yeah, I, mean, I need Jesus because of what Adam did way back then. You know, I'm innocent and sinless, but that Adam, if it wasn't for Adam and Eve, I wouldn't even need the cross. No, the fact is none of us suffer in innocence. We all actively participate in sin ourselves. We take the same fruit of temptation and we take a bite and we feed the appetites of our flesh and our sin nature. And so we are also guilty of our sins, our shame, our guilt. So this is not innocent human sacrifice here in this story. This is a, a representative substitute that will make atonement for the wrongs from the past. Saul gave the orders, but the blood guilt was on his entire house. And so now, um, you know, we, as far as timing on this story, you know, we hear reference of Mephibosheth here in, in chapter 21, verse 7. Um, we're hearing about the bones of Saul and Jonathan. You know, back at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 31, the first chapter of 2 Samuel, we heard about the death of, of Saul and Jonathan and some of his sons in that battle on Mount Gilboa against the Philistines. We heard that the men of Jabesh Gilead went and got their 
their bodies and burned them and buried the bones after they were cremated. So it's after all that happened. But throughout 2 Samuel, Mephibosheth has come up a few times. This son of Jonathan, Saul's grandson. And so we're hearing again an echo. Remember, David had spared Mephibosheth, blessed him, allowed him into his own home. And once again, when it's time for seven of Saul's sons to stand in as a representative substitute to make atonement for the wrongs of the household of Saul, Mephibosheth is again spared. Uh, Some people look at this story and say, you know, this may have actually happened earlier in David's reign and it's just now being included in the story here. I think it fits great right where it is. I think this is the end of David's life and there's some things that God is resolving within the kingdom as David's preparing to hand the kingdom over to his son Solomon here at the beginning of 1 Kings. So the the sacrifice is made, the atonement is made. And there in verse 9, listen to some of the, the words here that you may detect some echoes from the story we're more familiar with about atonement in the New Testament. So David gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. Um, The method of their execution is not really clear in Hebrew. You know, when you see hanged, you automatically think noose, right? They were lynched. There was a rope involved. If you crucify someone, you also hang them using the same word. Um, If you hang someone with a noose, you probably need a tree. At this time in history, probably not a a metal object or something to use. Maybe a tower. Our Lord was said to be hanged on a tree as well. Another word for the cross is a tree. Jesus took our sins upon himself as he hung on a tree. Jesus also was on a mountain on that day. He was on on Golgotha, the place of the skull. And he was hanging before the Lord as a substitutionary atonement for us, the one who took our guilt upon himself, a representative sacrifice. The timing on this story as these seven boys are, these seven young men are are being offered to the Gibeonites to make atonement, this was the first days of the harvest which is ironic in light of when this is happening. This is the third year of a famine. It's not going to be much of a harvest. Crops are not growing well. There's a drought. So there's not much of a harvest, and yet there's that hope that by this act of obedience and sacrifice and making atonement, that God will once again bless the land. We have here seven guilty men that are hung before the Lord on a mountain to atone for the sins of one family against a nation. 
And today we have been worshiping and praising and praying to the God who sent the one innocent God-man to this earth, his son, Jesus, to hang on a mountain to atone for the sins of every family and every nation against the holy God. And hopefully in this we, we find some hope that we don't live under this old covenant anymore. That my sins don't get passed on to my children and that they then have to make atonement for their sins or my own sins, but that Jesus has fully paid the price, that his sacrifice is sufficient, and that God looks at that sacrifice as complete and achieved. Again, there, there are, we're not without parallels in the modern world for substitutionary atonement. You know, I mean, the church has to carry uh, liability insurance in case something really bad happens in our church because then some of us who are like in charge of stuff can get named on lawsuits and go to jail for even stuff that maybe I didn't do, right? But it happened here in our family. Uh, this, you know, you read about high-profile news stories about CEOs of corporations or presidents of universities where you know, someone needs to pay for the crimes of this institution against this family or this individual. We don't know exactly who did it, but we know that your company was at fault. And your name's at the top of the flow chart. You're going to jail. Right? So there, we do have legal examples of someone being punished on behalf of, whether it's an organization or in this case, a family, or in the case of Jesus, he took upon himself the sins of us all. And so as the Father, in his, all of his attributes, love, mercy, goodness, justice is a part of that as well. And so he looks at his son, Jesus, who on the cross utters these words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he himself who knew no sin took our sins upon himself to make a way for us to be cleansed and forgiven and made right at one mint with God. And I hope that brings you joy today in that complex kind of joy that's mingled with sorrow that says, man, I don't deserve that. He did that for me. I was the one who blew it. I'm the one who's guilty. And he took my sins upon himself. Maybe that's striking you for the first time today. I hope you're not still believing the lie that you're pretty good. I'm good. I don't need that sacrifice. I hope you get a good hard look at the raw reality of the messed up person you are without Jesus. And I'm not here to beat you up. I hope you don't go too far down that path and miss the part about that God loves you, that he created you, that he's got a good plan for you, that he willingly went to the cross for you because he wants to have right relationship with you. Restoration, at one He desires relationship with you 
And we're going to have an opportunity at the end of the service to pray. You know, we're talking about prayer and fasting. Let's do it today. The prayer part, especially right now. So in just a moment, I'm going to invite you to go ahead and maybe huddle up with some people around you. Maybe today, this is the part of the story that you need to grab a hold of. And have some people pray for you and say, this is just sinking in for the first time that Jesus paid the price for my sins. And I want to respond to that. I want to, I want to respond by giving him my all and responding to his invitation to be at one with him. And so we've got, there's, there's a whole room full of people that would love to pray with you today. And let's, let's cement that, let's seal it, let's live in that reality. The story that we read here back in the Old Testament, it was an effective sacrifice. The Gibeonites said, well, this is what we would require. The price was paid. The wrongs were righted. There's a hurting woman here that's, that's included. Let's not breeze past her story. So this is the mother of two of these sons of Saul. And so we do, we do get a glimpse of a, a further wrong committed by the Gibeonites now in this case. The appropriate thing to do, no matter how a person is, is killed or executed, is to give them a proper burial at this time in Israel's history, at this time in the ancient Near Eastern world. And yet these bodies are, are not given proper burial. So David didn't, was not aware of the fact that the Gibeonites had really desecrated the memory of these young men who had suffered for their sins on behalf of the sins of Saul, the blood guilt upon them. But then he hears the story of what Rizpah has done. Verse 11, when David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went into further action. So this mom, you know, she's spreading sackcloth on a rock. It looks to me like it's in the sense of a tent. So she's providing shelter for herself at the beginning of the barley harvest all the way until the rains start. That's a different season. There's a long period of time where she, as a mother, is out there overlooking the, the bodies of her dead sons and keeping the, the birds off. It's a horrible picture. And David hears what's happened. David's always had a good pattern of upholding the anointed king and showing respect even to those who were his enemies. And so he takes this opportunity to not only honor these seven sons who have died to be the substitutionary atonement for the sins of the whole household of Saul against the Gibeonites, but he then goes even further back and says, and you know, by the way, let's get Saul and Jonathan and give them a proper burial in their hometown as well. And it's after all of those extra actions that come after the real drama of the story that we see that last verse. The end of chapter 14, or verse 14. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. It wasn't, you know, and as God saw the seven sons of Saul hanging there on the mountain before the Gibeonites, God heard the plea for the land. It was after a mother's grief and a king's taking action to give honor and respect and to make things right that really the prayer was answered. And as I read this story, you know, which began with there was a famine 
David sought the face of the Lord. God said there's an issue from your past as a nation that has not been resolved. And then he put that idea with the very end of the story when after the burial of the bones, God responded to the plea for the land. For me, this brings up questions of prayer. And I think the, the simple idea that God answers prayer in one of three ways is too simple. So I've heard this, I've probably said it before. Sometimes God says yes, sometimes God says no, and sometimes God says wait. I think there's some, there's some good aspects of that simple idea of prayer. But this story makes me realize that God's got a whole array of possible responses, not just those three. Sometimes one of God's responses when we come to him, say, God, you see this circumstance. I know it's not your will because you're the maker of heaven and earth and you created a good earth. And this is a land flowing with milk and honey, but it's been in famine for three years. God, I just want to make you aware of this situation. Seek your face. God is not constrained by the responses yes, no, and wait. One of the options at his disposal is to answer by saying, have you done that thing that I talked to you about? Have you been obedient to me? Is there some area that you need to work toward restoration in? There's someone you haven't been willing to forgive. I think we're afraid of looking at those sorts of responses from God because we're afraid we might tip over into an area of some kind of works-based you know, reward uh, system where, you know, hey, when I, when I mess up, God just hammers me. And when I do good things, he gives me a pat on the head. Gives me the stuff I want. Obviously, we don't want to go there. But I think in this story, there is that complex relationship between obedience and blessing. It's not a one-way street. It's a both and. One leads to the other. When our loving, good Father pours out blessing on our lives, as he did most fully on the cross, how can we respond but to glorify him and to worship him and to obey him and say, all that I am is yours and all who I am belongs to you? And vice versa. As our loving father looks at us as his sons and daughters and says, your life is consecrated to me, you belong to me, you've put myself in, your, in my hands, I see your acts of obedience, he delights in pouring out blessing. And I think in this, in this story there is that complex answer to prayer where David's saying, I'm seeking your face, Lord, in a famine. And God's saying, there's some things that I want you to obey and resolve, and that's going to open up the floodgates of my blessing for you and for the nation. Let's go to him together today and give thanks. And, and I'm going to close in prayer and then turn you loose to, to pray in groups as well. Uh, but I'll just, I'd just like to pray a blessing on you before we end with uh, prayer in small groups today. God, I thank you for the atoning work of your son on the cross. We thank you that your sacrifice is sufficient. That, Lord, we have 
wronged you, the holy God, by our actions, by our inactions, by our thoughts and words. We thank you that you've made a way for us to be with you, to be restored, to be made right. We thank you for the cross today. God, we pray that if there's, as we come to you in times of prayer, that we would have ears and not just mouths that are used in prayer. That it wouldn't be just us communicating to you, but also us listening to you, having soft hearts toward you, being led by you. And if there's someone here today that you're calling to an act of obedience, surrender, restoration, reconciliation, give them the courage and the strength to do what you're requiring, what you're asking. Lord, we thank you that you do hear our prayers, that you're a good God. We trust in you. Pray this now in Jesus' name, amen. Um, as, you, as, as you turn to groups, it could be a, a prayer for salvation as you're finding out about what Jesus did on the cross. It could be a prayer for something going on in your family. I'll just share something with, with the whole church family if you could be praying for especially Heidi today. Um, her family's gone through a, a pretty rough week. Um, we just drove back from Des Moines yesterday. Um, last Sunday, Heidi's cousin Rachel um, posted a message on Facebook. She's 31, uh, lives in Des Moines, and she said, today's the 26th anniversary of my dad's death. Thank you to all the guys who have been like a substitute dad that God has brought into my life. I'm one of those guys. I met her when she was seven and would roughhouse with her, so right, right after her dad had died. So on that day, 26 years after her dad's death, her husband Grant was driving home from church in Des Moines and He, he was killed in a car accident. And so we just drove back from the funeral yesterday. So um, she's reliving the story of, of her own family's history now as a single mom of, of an eight, a six, and a three-year-old children. And so, um, you know, it was encouraging for us to be there with the family, uh, to see Rachel's faith and courage as she got up during the funeral. And looked at each of her children and spoke words of blessing to them and said, this is what your dad loved about you. This is what he said about you. Um, and her faith in a sovereign God expressed over and over in what she shared. Um, her Grant was a worship leader at their church and the treasurer at the church there. They, they did a lot of missions work. It's hard to not question God on the timing and on a life cut short. And yet to hear the, the widow, our, Heidi's cousin, speaking those words of truth and hope at that time. And so that, that happened uh, yesterday, and now Heidi's getting on a plane this afternoon to go down to Texas. Her, her sister has cancer and is starting a second round of chemo tomorrow. So it's a lot of, a lot of uh, pressure from different sides. So I know our family's not the only one that's going through uh, difficulties. I know looking around the room, I see some of you that I've been praying with and praying for as well. I think it'd be good if we as a church family just get into some huddles and support one another and pray that uh, God will work in these situations as we trust in him. So let's, let's end in that way today if we could.